listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And i got to tell you something. Uh, I interviewed this gentleman almost nine years ago when I was living in Burbank, and, and I used to record at this studio on Olive Avenue, and it's this nice building. It was always a pain in the butt to park at. But I remember he came on, and he was a great guest, and we had a great talk about his career. He's a legendary soap opera, soap opera actor, and he has a podcast coming out. So maybe I influenced him to start a podcast. But my guest is Teo Pangos. How you doing, Teo? Hello. Nice to be there. Or here. I, I, I got to hear about the podcast. It's called uh, Lost Treasures. The Lost Treasures. Tell me about it, because you're a world traveler. I'm sure it's fascinating. Well, you know, I, I thought to myself, because I'd gone through nine books of Schliemann, uh, who discovered Troy and Mycenae. Um, I had gone to Troy a number of times. Um, I went through 60,000 documents that he had donated to the Genalius Library in Athens. So that took me about a couple of weeks to sift through all the newspaper clippings as well, as well as his, his diaries. But what I love, you know, because when I was a kid, I wanted the idea of a treasure. Or There's nothing more exciting to me than digging into the earth and finding something ancient. Because then you say, well, whose was this? And when was the last time? Because, you know, all the times I'd been to Egypt and I had the opportunity of going into a tomb that had just been opened. And I was the first one to enter after 4,000 years. So when I went into that, that kind of stimulated me. That was, I was 26. And that kind of stimulated within me the idea of lost treasures. And so when I, when I looked, when I looked at um, uh, Schliemann in Troy and what he had uncovered and how long it took and the cost of it all and the fact that people laughed at him because they thought that the idea of, of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey were just really myths. So he sort of unraveled to the world. He put the flesh and bones on these characters. So, you know... You have to have an imagination. Part of traveling does that for you. You know, it expands your imagination. That's why sometimes um, when I've been writing with a, a writing partner and they say, where does that imagination come from? Well, it's all the journeys I've taken. I think when you start to understand other cultures, you have a, a better idea of how you fit in. The world is, I look at things through cooking situations. I look at a cake and I think, well, I'll take a piece and how does that piece influence the rest or what do I learn from the whole picture? And so I began to write these stories and I thought, you know, I should let the public see these stories and hear these stories because I, I've lived a good life. And the great thing about it is I made those choices myself. That wasn't because somebody said, I'll go and do this and go and do that, like your parents would say or your teachers would say. These were my choices. So out of this came the lost treasures. And so I've been, the only one, I haven't seen the Trojan treasure because that's in Troy. And that's, uh, sorry, in, in Russia. Um, it was stolen from the Second World War. But, you know, when you, the, the treasures of Mycenae, of where Agamemnon, and that was the beginnings of the Trojan War, that's what I started to, to study. And so I went there a number of times. I've sat there reminiscing, and then I'd come out with the idea of a story. What happened there? I find some old piece in the ground, some chard, you know. And as one archaeologist said, you know, if there's no chards, there's no history here. So I would pick up a chart and imagine what, who touched this, what was it part of. So through all that, I decided to sit down 
and see what would come out. So the first, there are three, and the first one is the discovery of Troy. The second one is the discovery in Mycenaean, the Mycenaean gold, which is phenomenal. That I've seen in the Archaeological Museum in Athens. And, and then the fourth one, the third one is bringing um, Ulysses home. You know, they've been saying that Ulysses, who was, which was the, the odyssey of Homer's, uh, was all, all just an, a poet's imagination. So I just met last year, I went to an island called Kefalonia, and I met with a scholar and an explorer called John Crawshaw. And this man showed me the new discoveries of where, where the true island of Ithaca, of, of, of Ulysses, really resides, and, and as opposed to the one that they're talking about today. So I did that exploration. So the three came out, and then I thought, well, why did I do these stories? What was the significance? So I told the stories uh, about how I was, they tried to kidnap me in the pyramids when uh, in my youth, um, when Hez, uh, Hezbollah threw me against the wall in southern part of Lebanon because they thought I was an Israeli spy. I, I talked about uh, the great treasure that I found in the tomb of Mer from 2340 BC. So I put stories in that made me say, I've lived well, I should tell these stories, and that's what I've done. Now, do you sit there, is it just you telling the story when you do the podcast? Is it you producing it, or is it a, a type of story where you're, when you say you get thrown against the wall, you have someone saying, you know, Teo, or is it just you? Uh, it's not you. Know, you know, but how do you tell a story? That's the other thing. I've done one-man shows where I've told stories. So I know by listening to my audience, if it's dropping or it's picking up, they're, they're with me. Uh, it's like conversations around the dinner table. People who tell stories don't understand that too many pauses drops the conversation and makes it less interesting. So I decided I would tell the story, sort of in parts act it out, and then my agency, who has a production company called 5200, they put the sound effects in from a New York um, office. And they did wonderful sound effects. You know, it's it's like when I went in the second story, when I went to Cephalonia uh, to ex to explore, sorry, in, in the third story, explore the Ulysses story, I was in a valley and I, and I remember standing there and I realized that that entire mountain had come down all the way from because of a major earthquake between the 4th and 6th century, and then a tsunami came. Now I'm standing in that landscape. So I said to the agent, please, would you give me the sound of what it would be like to hear a mountain coming down and a tsunami following it? So it was that type of work uh, which they put the effects in, and we just finished it all. Now, when did you get this, such a sense of travel were you born with it because you know some people will go oh i'm going to travel and they never do you know i moved to the west coast i moved back to new jersey i know lots of people who said oh well, it's so cool you moved to la why did you come back i go because oh, i got tired of la and i you know i came back but i saw you had that sense of adventure and i've always had that even since i was a little kid but when did you get a sense of adventure because you know you've lived a great life as you said but when did you start deciding was it a young age were you like i i want to explore because you said you did when you were little, but did you? When did you want to start leaving your country? Um, 
probably when my father was rather abusive and I, and I'd seen movies about America and during its innocent age, you know, in the 50s, where uh, movies where everybody loved each other and the suburbs were nice and clean and there was nothing, there was you didn't see cops, you know, they'd walk up and down saying hello to the neighbours and I thought, ah, I would love to be in a place because I was brought up in a Greek society and that certainly had its dramas. And I, I wondered, I, I just thought, there's got to be more than this. And I was an immigration official at the time and I remember running up the stairs, my father said in front of his brothers and some of my uncles, so what are you going to do when you grow up? I said, I'm going to be an archaeologist. And they said, what for? I said, so I could find gold. Well, when I read that, that's what Schliemann did. <laughs> I said, Who thinks that that's going to happen in your life? Well, I, I found gold in other areas. But, you know, after a while, I, I, I migrated to New York. I became an American citizen. And, and when I moved to L.A., that I'm sort of over with, I think the culture here is, I mean, how long can you live in this culture? Tell me, tell me, tell me, I want to explain, I want you to explain that to my listeners, because I say the same thing. And, and what, what I tell my friends when I move back, and, and I tell people who are leaving L.A., because a lot of people, a lot of actors are, a lot of people are leaving. And when you leave L.A., and people who've never lived there don't understand this, it takes like a month to decompress. Because there's always something. There's always the thought of traffic or this or that. And so after like a month, you go, oh, wow, I can I can get up and drive 10 miles. It, it'll take me uh, 10 minutes, not an hour and a half. But, or I can walk. Yeah. You know, what, what, why are you getting tired of the culture in L.A.? I think it's dying. I think um, I came into the business at the end of the golden age. I think... Um, the different levels that we had and we were taught in acting classes of society, the, the breaking down of, like with Stella Adler as a teacher, you know, how big was the sky? How does an audience know uh, your relationship with somebody if you don't show the kind of respect or the boundaries that are necessary? The boundaries have gone. Uh, people, uh, actors these days want to want to act without paying for the lessons. They, you know, like one guy I know, I said, so why aren't you going to classes? He says, because I do it on Zoom. What they don't get is that you don't, until you have an audience, you don't know what you're exploring. You don't know, and you have to fail at times. And you do in order to win. But I found that in LA, um, I'm tired of cars. I'm tired of having to go to a big distance just to get a stick of butter. I hate going to the post office because the post office little boxes are always being robbed. Uh, that's I've had calls from the police saying, did you write these checks? Well, there's your name on it. And, and they've, they've gone down to those little letter boxes and, and gone down with something glued at the end of it and picks out the letter and they steal that. So now I have to go, travel, I don't know, 20 minutes to go to the post office. And after a while I think, look at all that waste of time. That. And then I see my friends in Greece, for instance, or my, I mean, all these cultural things that are still going because they respected their history. We don't respect our history. We, we kind of knock it down. We want something else new. We're always going for the new things or the younger things. But in Europe, they still sustain and have respect for the elderly. They still respect their, their, their boundaries. They still respect their, their foundations that they've built through centuries. And we don't have that here. I mean, New York does. 
but I don't get that here. And I thought after a while, you know, it. Not every, it's not going to affect everybody. It depends on, on where you want to go. Because a lot of people say to me, God, you're deep. I said, well, I have to be deep if I want to explore the things I want and have some kind of gravitas to what I say. And so, I, you know, I've been to the Middle East 14 times, 15 times. So I learned other cultures. At first it was scary because I, it was unknown, the culture. It was... Um, uh, it had certain boundaries, certain religious, certain things that you're going, oh, my God, I could get into trouble here uh, if you said something. But, you know, you learn about other cultures. And what it is is it teaches you boundaries. It teaches you to respect how others have lived. It's not just that America, the world. And the same thing, you know, when I go home to Australia, it's nice and everything, but I don't feel that people have stretched their limits. They haven't gone beyond the norm. They're couch travelers, you know. They sit in one place most of the time pointing their fingers. So for me, you know, those of us who want to explore in life need more than just getting into a car in Los Angeles and, and hopefully think that something interesting will happen so you'll have conversation at dinner. But when I come back from overseas, I mean, it's just amazing how you filled. And that's why I've sustained the characters I've had on days because of that fulfillment. Uh, I mean, some people don't go anywhere. They play baseball, they do whatever sports, but no culture. Well, you so know, to build that up and that's how you explore. You know, it's, 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 it's funny. You're right. Because uh, my wife and me, we got married four years ago and we went on our honeymoon uh, to Croatia. And, and mm. there, there was so much history. Like, you know, I grew up near Philadelphia and we thought we had history. Then you go over there and you see this, this castle that is so big and you're like how did they even get the rocks up there like there wasn't even cars and you're right you come back with just a different sense of you know our our uber driver during the the one war he his house got blown up his arm was all screwed up his father died and you go you know here we're bitching about you know oh our cable went out but there the whole person's life shattered and i don't think we go through that a lot here no uh it's um and every culture is different. I mean, I love Egypt. Um, Greece is like my second home, really. Um, but, you know, there's, there's still so much to learn. And I think as I've gotten older now, oh, my God, there's less years in front of me. And I still haven't caught up. And so I think the writing part of it is I wanted to have something in the stories of my life for the family, for the history. Because we didn't ask our parents the necessary questions. We didn't ask them during our, our times together, so what happened in your life? What what did you do? How did you escape that? All those things that later you're going, especially when you're writing, they don't know. We don't know what they did. And so we just have to imagine. So that's why I, I wrote these stories, just to show that my uh, as part of my ancestor. Um, that, you know, my father came to Australia as a, an immigrant. It wasn't a particularly exciting life, um, nor did he do much of, that was exciting for him. And so he didn't have many stories. But then one day when I brought him over to America to meet my friends, he started telling me of the days he was in with the Aborigines cut, cut, cutting cane, uh, uh, sugar cane. And I said, when did you do that? <laughs> He goes, what? I said, when did you do that? When were you with the Aborigines? His Aborigines were his best friends. And I went, I never saw an Aborigine in Sydney. How did you know? You never even told us. So you have to ask questions. I say this to people. Listen, you don't know in 20 years, you may be writing a book. And then when you want to recall your ancestry, you, you didn't ask the right questions. 
So I think it's so important. And also, um, you know, you're here, and it goes fast. You're here to do as best you can in this life and the tools you came in with and the tools you've developed along the way. But I've been blessed. You know, I've met some, especially in New York, I met some incredible people in my 20s. The, the decade that you plant all those seeds. What what made you get into acting? You said when you came over here, you wanted to be an archaeologist, but of course, no one comes to America to be an archaeologist. What uh, what what, uh, what made you decide mother, to get into acting? And and looking back, did you think? I mean, you your soap career, you're legendary. I mean, everybody knows you, and I know that's hard for some people to hear, but it's true. I mean, people know your character. Days is everyone I've known in college. We watched Days. You know every. Anyone you talk to, all walks of life. It could be a heavy metal person. It could be, you know, uh, a garbage man. They all know someone who's watched Days of Our Lives. So you have had a great life. But what made you decide to pursue acting? Well, I tell you, um, I'm always surprised. Like the other day, I saw a beautiful photograph of a man and a, and a young boy with these incredible blue eyes. And I thought, wow, what a beautiful portrait. And I wrote that. And he wrote back and said, I cannot believe that I have just had a remark made by Tony DeMera, you know, whose father was Stefano. Well, that, that always surprised me. I said, well, okay, I'm still a human being like everybody else. I just happen to be playing these characters that have had longevity, insights into, I mean, all that culture that I learned was, I think, was part of the secret to my longevity. But as being an actor, it was by accident. Um, uh, I was watching The Unsinkable Molly Brown the other day. And I had a couple of friends looking at this musical. I said, this is a great musical. And I said, there's somebody in this that I'm going to show you who brought me into the business. And he was a Greek in New York called Vasily Lambrinos. And Vasily ended up being a wonderful painter, but a close friend of Debbie Reynolds. So he said to me, you should be an actor. And I said, no. He said, no, no, no. Come on. I'm going to take you to an acting class. And he took me to an acting class. And by, I mean, it was just hard. I mean, the idea of getting in front of people and, and creating something seemed stupid to me. I'm going to dig into the earth and find something. But funnily, I was able to dig into some kind of earth to find a character, to develop a character. So in some way, parallel, it was the discovery except it was the discovery of self and how do you, you, you express that through a character. And I thought, I'm going to make some money, and that's why I'm going to pay for my journey. Some people say, actors don't make money. You know, they always end up poor, you know, that you, you can see the majority of them. And I said, well, I have to find a way, and I did. And when this character came, like everything I do, I invest as much of myself as I can to support it. And so... You know, it's also who, who crosses your path and, and the, you, to have the know-how to understand that that person who just crossed your path has meaning rather than just somebody shook your hand. Not everybody, but you have to be aware that certain people have crossed your life that made a difference. Who are some of those people that have crossed your life? When you say that, looking back, there has to be a few people that helped you out that even even at the time you may not have known, but looking back, you go, oh, my God. It was right in front of me. This person mentored me, even though I didn't think it. But who are some of the people that helped you out, you know, through your whole career? I would, well, I would say, you know, what built the career to where I had built a foundation in order to step from. And the first that comes to mind is when I studied 
art in New York because it was culture. And that was Robert Ellsworth and, and James Goldie. I was, uh, uh, um, I, I was getting $75 a week. And, I, and so I was a student, really. And so for two, three years, I studied. And that gave me a sense of, of uh, an area that I didn't have before. And, 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 and uh, that's where I met Jacqueline Kennedy. Um, and that made, you know, and I had tea with her with my cookies I made. That was a, a, another little notch. Then I met Milton Katselis, who was the director of the zoo story of Butterflies of Free, um, a few Broadway productions. Uh, he was famous also for the Sue story off-Broadway. He was the assistant uh, in his youth to, um, who was the director of uh, Streetcar Named Desire? Kazan. Kazan. He was the assistant to Kazan. So I became his assistant uh, for over 10 years and started with him for 30-odd years. I came across... Melodondre, who was tops in the fashion, like he did all the clothes for Godfather, the Godfather movies. I, I was part of that world. Um, uh, the person who was there before me was Ralph Lauren. He left and I came in. I was getting into design and fashion. I was to open Georgetown's uh, store. Melodondre dies three years later of a heart attack. I'm now into acting. I meet Stella Adler. Uh, I, I meet, um, God, I'm thinking of all, all, all different, um, um, uh, the famous composer um, who just died in his 90s. Um, uh, 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 Not Sondheim, though. Uh, yeah, Stephen Sondheim. So I meet Stephen Sondheim. I have, I, I, I have evenings with Stephen Sondheim. His friends, those agents those producers, and suddenly here I am at 26, and I am listening without making any conversation because I thought, no, there's too much to learn here for me to butt in. So all those different people along the way, um, I could say, you know, people in Egypt that I met, people different places in Europe, all were part of, you know, what Milton Katselis used to say, life is like a necklace, and every time you have a... Um, you have a, an, an important experience. It, it's another bead that adds to the necklace that eventually will become a circle of your life. And so all those people, I, I think, in many ways, made a difference in, uh, uh, differently in some of them. But Stella Adler gave me a tremendous amount of confidence because she tore me down and then built me up when I was able to listen and then to work through the problems that I had as an actor. Now, in in your young career, what kind of parts were you going out for? Because you know, you look at you look at uh, IMDb and you see Heart to Heart and Nero Wolf and all these shows. But what was the? Because you know, back then Hollywood was still very white. You know, I know Ken Lerner, who was on the Happy Days as one of the Malachi brothers, said there was no Italians in Hollywood. So they were casting all the Jewish guys from New York because it was a different. It was a sign where he said it was great for us. But what kind of parts were you getting cast for? Because TV was really just white and black. There was not a lot of ethnicity in it. Wow. Yeah, that's so true. Um, when they saw me, they always saw me as a villain. I don't know what I think it was just my dark looks and also the fact that I always went in thinking that I had a secret that they didn't know. 
you know what I mean, and sit there. And, and so that secret stayed in my head while I was talking to them. So I never gave things away. So I, I, I was, I, I was the the dark one. Who, like even with General Hospital, I was the villain there. When I came on today, I was the villain there. In the earlier roles, um, most of them, uh, I was up like heart to heart uh, with with um, uh, Robert Wagner. I, I, I remember, you know, I, I played an Arab. You know, I played a, um, a Greek. I played uh, on Kojak, and so I played all ethnic roles. Certainly, I didn't play, you know, your lovely school teacher that comes in and talks to the white children. No, that wasn't that wasn't the situation. But and theater, although I did in New York when I did jockeys with Milton Katsellas, I played Balanchine. You know, as a dancer and. And the Joffrey, uh, head of the Joffrey, was our choreographer, and Jules Stein and Joseph Kipnis were the producers. And it was from there that suddenly um, I got slow dancing in the big city because of that role, that John Abelson, who'd won the, uh, the Oscar for Rocky, uh, was directing. So I wasn't playing ethnic there, really, in that movie. So that started a difference. And also, we started looking at life in a bigger way. It wasn't just... Even though today, so many white people feel threatened, I think, about ethnics or that the the roles are changing in this country, and they're more in the minority. When we, it's kind of reversing now. You know, the, you can see that uh, all different ethnicities are being expressed on on our communications. Now, how did days come about? What was once again? It's so it's so funny because it's. It stays. How, how did that come about? Was that something? Were you looking to get into a soap opera? Did you just, as an actor, you said, "I I want an act. I want to make money." How did days come about? Well, I was doing a piece of theater at the Geffen, and I was playing a 14th century monk, and it was during the time of the Inquisition. The Amundsen producers and um, of Man for All Seasons came to the play because it was a period piece. They came and um, I get a letter backstage saying that they would like to meet with me. And it was going to be for Man for All Seasons with Charlton Heston. So it was a part of Richard Rich. And that part was an English teacher. And I thought, wow, that would be wonderful. It would break the mold, you know what I mean, for me. So when I went in and, and I went back, and, and Jack O'Brien, who's won three Tonys, he was the director. So I went back three times, and then they wanted me to meet Charlton Heston. So I met with Charlton Heston, and I just have to say, one of the most wonderful human beings I'd ever met. I mean, especially to an actor. He was a real gentleman, very respectful. And then there was an actor from New York who'd won a Tony, and he wanted to play the part. So then they said, well, we're going to offer you the uh, part of uh, the understudy. And I said, no. And they said, if you don't do this, you'll never work at the Amundsen. And suddenly Altered States came on. So I did Altered States with Ken Russell and Bill Hurt. And that was the beginning. I had met with a lot of people. It was all going well. I had other offers. I did um, the Bell Jar. Um, and then suddenly the strike came. There was no work for actors. The only work available was daytime. So I get called in because someone had seen Altered States. And I was called in as one of the um, uh, one of the uh, Cassidines. 
And that's how it all started. And I, I lasted three months. Gloria Monti, who was head of General Hospital Producing, she, uh, she saved me from all the other 30 actors who were the guests for the summer and told me I was coming back. Except Pat Falcon Smith, who was writing for General Hospital, went to Days of Our Lives and recommended they, they steal me over. And they called it the one that got away. And she took me over to General uh, to Days of Our Lives. How was that? that all about. How was that adjusting? Because as you said, you know, theater is one thing. You know, you have a play, you're in front of people, you're getting the automatic gratification. Daytime, you have to learn a lot. It's not like you sit there and you, in a play, you can do table reads and you can do this and you can rehearse. What was it easy for you to start doing the heavy? Because it's a heavy. People don't understand being a daytime actor. It's a heavy workload because you have to learn lines every night i was a disaster <laughs> i cannot tell you if it wasn't for the fact that gloria monty at gh saw something in me i i, I said it's impossible for any human being to learn this many lines they gave me speeches after speeches after speeches <laughs> my brain said no way it was not, uh, it was it really, uh, I went up so many times that she shot every paragraph separately because I didn't think I could ever do it. And then a wonderful producer came along to me and said, listen, darling, she said, have a look at your script. When you look at the first scene, that's scene number one. Then go to scene number two. But do it all gradually. Don't look at the whole thing because it'll just muddle your mind. So do it all individually. But to this day, you know, they still give me big, big speeches. And I once said to a writer, do you think you can cut some? I mean, having six-page monologue and the other actor had four lines. <laughs> Possibly could you not give me so many speeches? She stopped writing for me. So you have to watch that you don't insult their, their sensitivities. Um it's a brain thing. It's like a muscle. You know, you can lift so much, but once you start working out and building that muscle, then you're able to remember better. So it's easier for me. I have a better understanding. And also the fact I'm confident with my character. I've made him as diverse as possible. And I've also, the clothing that I learned about design in, the, in my 20s is what gave me the ability to know my clothing for what I'm doing in days. And that was one of the things for me. But once I put the costume on, the walk changed. What was it like when you were on Mission Impossible? Because you were on when they were in Mission Impossible. That must have been something different too, because it's a it's a nighttime show, and it's a series, and you're playing. It's a known franchise. I mean, look now, Tom Cruise's movies are he's been doing them forever. But, but did that come easily? I mean, and what what was your experience working on that kind no. of set? Well, that was six days a week. Um. During the strikes, so they had to shoot in Australia. Even when I went in, everybody else was cast except my character. I had to go and test twice because they thought I looked too good looking, they thought, for the character. They wanted more character in the face. So I remember I went into a, 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 a Jewish um, in uh, Fairfax store that sold secondhand clothing. And uh, I, I found a cap like you're wearing. And, and um, I, I, I put powder in my hair to take the sheen off. I didn't shave. The suit was too big for me. The shoes were too big. 
So I took all that and I walked in and they didn't recognize me when I did the last test. And uh, I had to do two monologues. And it was Anthony LaPaglia who was my final competition. And then, uh, you know, something happens. When you come at the brink, it's either you jump or you step back and you'll never find out what it was like to take that jump. Well, I took the jump. I started screaming because the character was in prison, ready to go to death because he was being put to death. The tears that ran down my face. I mean, I used their, their rejection from the days before and used it in the monologue and started screaming at them through the character. They took it. They, they couldn't believe it. It was so, so emotional that they stood up applauding, screaming. And that's how I got mission. And I was able to go home, to go home to my family and say, I'm going to come home for a while and we're going to do Mission Impossible. So we started in Queensland, went to Melbourne and in Sydney as well. But, um, you know, you're, you're learning four or five pages. That's it. On days, I had 40 pages sometimes. Two characters I was playing. So it was easy to learn. The thing is, how do you play it? Because it's all piecemeal. You may shoot the end first and shoot, you know, it's that way of making movies. So it's a different adjustment. But still, you, the whole, to me, the whole process is enjoying it. How many times have you been on and off days? It's been on, and you know, I mean, two I've been killed seven times. How long? Seven. So, so do you ever... But, Shall we laugh? Shall we have a good laugh? No, I, I, I must admit, that must be something that most on most TV shows, if you get killed, you're done. But for you, yeah. I mean, okay, the first time you got killed, did you think, I'm done, I'm done with days? No, but the first day, time, uh, after five years, I made the choice of leaving. And uh, and they told me they were going to blow me to bits. They were upset. Anyway, when I went back, and then this head writer called James Riley, uh, somebody had lied about something that I said, which was so untrue. Anyway, they were out to get me. So he killed me off. And he killed me off viciously. It wasn't just like, oh, Tony's dying, and goodbye. No, either it was a spike through my heart, it was a tiger ripping me to shreds. I mean, I thought to myself, this is a writer looking for vengeance. He reminded me a bit like Trump. He wanted vengeance, you know. And I said, okay, but I always remember Milton Katsella saying to me, when you leave, you leave well. Even when you die, you leave well. And so I would die. And I, But what was amazing about this business is I would die, right? They used to give you a cake. And I called it the cake of death. And I used to say, no, I don't want a cake. And then they, they just leave. And I'm lying in bed. I had just died. And I'm thinking, what did I do to get this, you know, to deserve this kind of thing? So when it happens to you a few times, they used to call you up in the office and say, we're going to kill off the character. Why this time? Well, it was James Riley again. So James Riley killed me three, four times. Why, what did he have against you? What did he not like about you? Not, uh, two actors had gone and spread the rumor that I was saying that his writing was shit. <laughs> and I went, I've never said that. I'm one of the few actors who, who, who respects the writer and makes it work from what comes off the page. And so he says, I'll show him. 
and I got a call from my producers. What did you say? What have you? Because James is so upset with you. I met with James. I had a great time with him, James Riley. Anyway, that was three, three, four times he killed me, and then he would be uh, uh, not killed off, but fired, and then I would come back. So obviously, I must have done something right. The character, in many ways, I started the Demeras before Joe Moscolo. So I, I started that family. I'm not crazy about what they've done to the family, and I'll say it outright. I just think it's just sad. We were a powerful family. And, you know, some writers just write differently. One head writer said, you're so complicated. I don't, and I thought, oh, my God, usually a writer likes when a <laughs> actor is complicated. So I thought, would you like me to break it down for you? You know, I mean, he just... so. I paid for that complication. I, I've never met a writer before who ever said that, who didn't like writing for my characters. Because in many ways, I made the characters exciting. You know, I dressed them well. I, I, I had this passion. I, I didn't, I took it more than just off the page, you know. You know, a woman throws champagne in my face. No, I don't throw a liquor back in a woman's face. And, and, and they said, well, what are you going to do instead? Because they wanted me to be a nasty guy. I said, I'm going to grab and kiss her. And then she'll slap me. So, you know, that that I enjoy. That kind of thinking and all that. But sometimes they like to think that you're going to do exactly as they say. And, you know, being a, a, an actor who has studied a lot, I like to be di as diverse as possible. And I think that's the reason why there's been so much uh, longevity, especially for a foreign actor. Now, now do, you, do you like being a villain? Yes. Okay, I mean, so but no, so how do people react? Because I used to hear stories like when James Garner used to play a tough guy. Whenever he would go to a bar, people would want to fight him because they thought he was yeah. really tough. And he's like, oh, no, I'm just... And, and Timothy Buzzfield from 30-something told me he was... Elliot was such a jerk on the show that he was in a grocery store like a Wegmans or something in Studio City and a woman came up and smacked him in the face and said, you're treating your wife awful and he tried to explain it was a character. But with your villain, you were like a sexy villain though. Like you weren't like, like it wasn't like you were like some thug villain. I mean, so how did people react to you when they would, could they differentiate between you being on screen and not? Because some people unfortunately can't and we even see that nowadays. I think it was because I, uh, you know, you either have a charm or you don't. You don't you don't work on charm. It's something that comes from your own soul, I think. It's the light that comes from within that shows up on your face. And that I was being I was blessed with. So, you know, I could kill you at the same time I'm smiling. But smiling not because I and I may have a tear that I had to do it, but I I I was never nasty. Andre was the other character was, and he died so many times I couldn't catch up how many times they killed him. But um, I, I never. I, I, to me, it was always getting away with things. You know, it's. I, I hate to bring this up, but look at Trump, and, and look at the way he gets away with things. I mean, he just, and he keeps smiling, and he keeps. Why do they keep enticing? Why do they like him? Because they like people like a good villain. Because within them, they're getting away with something too, which they don't. So the trick to being a good villain is enjoying it. You know, why do we like Dracula? Why was Dracula so? Because he was charming. He was handsome. He was, you know, when he did something, it was done with style, panache, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I enjoy being a villain. I think it's... Um, uh, if you don't have a good villain, you don't have a hero. 
Now, something that happened since the last time you were on my show, you came out with a cookbook, Seducing Celebrities One Meal at a Time. And I'm a, I love to cook. You know, is that something? How did you start cooking? Because, you know, when I got your press release, it said you throw these magnificent dinner parties. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, so tell me about that because that fascinates me because I could just see like – you know, Teo the suave, you know, with his smoking jacket and dressed all nice and it's tailored and he has hors d'oeuvres going around that are just like, you know, not the normal pigs in a blanket, nothing like that, like this real high end stuff. But when did you when did you start doing these parties and what made you decide to write a cookbook? Um, my mother was not really that good a cook. I, I suppose when I worked at the UN for a year, um, in my youth, I was invited to dinners from different uh, diplomatic offices. And I remember going to the Italian one, um, and I remember how well they cooked. And I used to observe how they cooked, or I'd taste something and wonder, hmm, I wonder what's in this. Um, you know, cooking is not an easy thing. It's not something you take for granted, because you realize there are many people who don't know how to cook. You know, they have a real hard time. The thing for me, the secret to it is enjoying it does. So the reason I've stayed healthy most of my life is because I got to understand what food is. And to me, you know, you, I used to, I mean, I've done, I've experimented with many things. When I go home to Australia, I cook for a lot of people. But for me, it just came because, you know, how, how are you good at anything? Um, it's through testing yourself and not being afraid to try it, understanding um, uh, seafood. Fish was always difficult for people to cook. You know, you, you know things like you don't put a cold fish on top of a, uh, of a medium-sized heated um, uh, grill. You know, things like that. The skin will come off. Well, how do you cook a whole fish as opposed to just a filet? How do you cook lamb? And then I found that one of the secrets to everything was having water in the pan above the grill so that it steamed it uh, into its inside, kept it moist, while the, the broiler cooked the outside and gave it a crispness. So all these little things, sauces, you know, like making a bechamel sauce. For, uh, you know, moussaka is not easy. Uh, it's a lot of layers. It's, I suppose, like many ways, the lasagna, what the Italians do. But understanding layers and then presenting it. I mean, I've never had, I've never had a dinner where people said, what is this? You know, it's it's always worked out. And because people like Doris Roberts used to come to my place every week for dinner, and she loved when I should come in because you create the atmosphere. You create the table so that people can't wait to sit down, and that becomes the watering hole. You have the right music on and the right lighting, and then you have the aroma so that when people come into your house, it all blends in and hits them. Because when you come into a house and you can't smell anything, usually someone else has done it somewhere else, you know, because the kitchen is supposed to have aroma, you know, when people come in. That's part of stimulating the appetite. So, yes, um, to me, it, it's it's like everything. If you start from scratch, like I did as an actor, like I did in so many things, fashion, art, well, all that. There's a formula for everything that really, in the end, becomes the same. Cooking, you make a soup. What are the ingredients? The base is the chicken broth. I take a whole chicken, take the broth of that. So 
if you understand the base of everything, and then you add the flavors that you like. Like I like to add a bit of curry and cumin to soups, you know. Cumin, cumin's good. Cumin goes good with black beans. People don't know that. If you have black yes. beans, cumin's very good. Yes. So what made you decide to write the cookbook, though? Was it just because you wanted to share your experiences, like the Doris Roberts stories, or, you know, you said uh, the, the tea with Jackie Kennedy? I mean, what what made you decide to write a book about cooking when it's it's more of, you know, it's seducing celebrities one deal at a the time, a great title. People want to say, oh, I want to read that. But what made you decide to write that? My manager called me up and he said, I, I have an offer for you to do a cookbook. And I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, that's a lot of work. He said, well, we've got cash up front. He said to me, as they talk, we've got cash up front. And I said, oh. Um, so I said, okay, so what kind of? So we started talking titles. He said, so what is food to you? I said, it's seduction. Food seduces. It's also the reward of existence. Uh, people eat anything without giving themselves. I want to put things that people could eat that were healthy. I like people to understand that when you when you follow one thing, you can do another. Everything has its own formula. And once I got the title of seducing celebrities, I thought, okay, who have I cooked for? Who have I worked with that I would have liked to have cooked for? And then who have I not cooked for that I would never cook for? <laughs> so that came, that brought me the categories. And then I would call my sisters in Australia and i say, okay, we know these desserts, these Greek desserts. I want to put these in the cookbook. These were my favorites growing up. So I would get things from them. And then I put, I cooked out of my head. You know, I didn't have a, I was one of those. My, my um, sister-in-law said, I hate you. And I said, why? She goes, because you can open the fridge and say, okay, what will I cook tonight? I have to open a cookbook, and I have to look at a recipe, and that's what I have to follow. You don't follow cookbooks. I said, no. So that was something that was in me. So I got to ask you, you've had this long career. Well, give me some highlights of days. Because people always, are, what are some of your highlights of that show? Because you, it's an iconic role you've played. What, what, looking back, what do you sit there and go, these are some real highlights of this show that I, I really cherish? I remember McDonald Carey, who was the daddy of us all. And I said to him one day, I was there a year, and I said to him, what is it, Mac? You never say hello. Or if you say hello, it's like, you know, you walk away. He said, Teo, I have loved many actors that have come on this show. But they died or had, they had to leave. So if you're here more than two years, I'll gladly get to know you. So I remember that was a message. When Joe Muscolo came on, who played my father, who I was working with in workshop, something elevated for me, it wasn't just a romantic villain. There was family beginning. And therefore, Joe, who believed in family, and he was so stoic, and suddenly I had someone to look up to, he was just, just fabulous to work with because we came out of the same classes and we demanded the, the work. Although he had a few surprises for me when he slapped me in the face and I saw stars. It wasn't even in the script. <laughs> um, 
I think Shirley Jones, you know, I was a big lover of Rogers and Hammerstein's growing up as a kid. And I loved Carousel in Oklahoma. And I loved those musicals when I was studying in New York. And she came on. I couldn't believe it. She was sitting in the chair. She said, hello there, gorgeous. And I looked at her and I went, oh, my God, it's Shirley Jones, you know. Well, that was a highlight for me. Um, Deidre Hall. I like working with Deidre. She's got a kind of mystery. She's stoic. She's got a wonderful character. She's another that's had longevity. Um, I mean, Leanne Huntley, I mean, she's been my wife on the show and off for 40 years. And why do we have chemistry when they tried her out with two other actors and it didn't work? It's just that I knew how to play with her. And then she played back. So at first she didn't. She wasn't interested in being my my uh, being my partner in on the show because she thought I was going to be difficult. Uh, and you know, I I charmed her. I charmed her with dancing. I charmed. You know, I, I brought in things as a character that like dance and costuming and and uh, fencing. I mean, playing myself double, fencing me, fence Tony, fencing Andre at six in the morning and learning how to fence, and then having to then turn around and shoot the other side of the other character. Having the two characters on camera at the same time, uh, but just shifting and then shifting and then shifting, and then the trickery of, of camera work. But that was a, they, they were the challenges. And out of that, because they, they elevated me to a certain point, um, I think also... Uh, Eileen Davidson was a challenge. We didn't always get along, but she taught me about what it was like to still do good work with people you didn't get along with. You know, the, the, those types. And then I had the cowboys who came at me, you know. And I had to grow out, grow up when they came because I was a threat. I mean, when you when you look at days in the, when I first arrived, there were cobwebs on the sets. And so, you know, I came on and there were all these Anglos and suddenly I came on and they're going, who's this? You know, so even um, uh, Susan Hayes challenged me. And she's written this in her book. You know, she challenged me. She thought I, was, I came on as a bit actor. Um, so she threw insults at me and she was testing me. So when I came on, everybody was, you know, the men would wear higher heels to be taller. And that would not be good for my back. So I didn't mind being shorter than some of them. I mean, at 5'11", I was still tall. But a lot of them wanted to be, you know, the cowboys of the 70s, you know, they needed to be taller somehow. So, you know, there was a lot of challenges. It wasn't like, you know, someone gave me a sandwich and say, eat it, and all the magic happened. It was it was things of, of, of being confident enough to face those challenges. Well, how do you, how are you deal with the adoring fans? Because I said, the first time you were on, I posted you were on Twitter. I mean, it blew up. I mean, I mean I'm like, holy God, I... These people are like, oh, when's Teo coming on? I just mentioned you might be coming on. Oh, but how do you deal with that? Because it's you're recognizable. You've been on the show forever. So you've affected grandmothers, mothers, daughters. I mean, you've affected whole generations. How? I mean, you know, 40 years. How How's the fans, how do you learn to start reacting to the fans when you probably get overwhelmed sometimes because you are a bigger than life figure to them. I tell you what was my fa one of my favorite experiences. I went to Masada in Israel, and I went to the top, and I hear this wonderful uh, uh, music of singing, and I followed the path on top of Masada, 
And I was, I was looking over the cliff and I'm thinking, oh, there's the, the remnants of the Romans that climbed and, and killed the, the Jewish people. And I followed the music and there in this room were all these French Jews from Paris and they were doing a bar mitzvah. And I was listening to them and I love ceremonies and I love other cultures and how they, how they, how they connect to their God in the way they do it. And uh, while I'm standing there, somebody tapped somebody else while they were doing the ceremony. And then another person, before you knew it, the ceremony stops. They all look around, they all get up and they start screaming, turning to Mary from days of our lives. So I, I ruined a bar mitzvah. But I have to say, it was like it gave you the sense of international. Um, even in the Middle East, mission was where it was big. But, you know, like when you go traveling, I remember um, at, at, with at Drake Hoekstra, and there would be 18,000 people turned up, you know, screaming. If you went to unbutton a shirt, you know, the way you upstaged another actor is in the middle of his moment, <laughs> just start unbuttoning a shirt <laughs> behind him and, and watch them all scream and he not knowing what, what the scream is about. So I learned all those tricks as well, but you know, your fans are, are what kept you going. You know, it's, they all come in different sizes, different minds, different kinds of intelligence. But in a, in a way, you know, they're a family because you have joined them in their home and it's not at a movie theater in the dark, but it's in their home where they can sit there and have their lunch and talk between themselves and fall in love with the character or, reminisce that they, it inspires them to be romantic too, depending on, on what they catch about you, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, the fans, without them, we have we don't have anything, you know. One one final question. What, what besides the, the podcast, what do you have in your future? Are you going to plan to keep traveling? I mean, is it something that it's, you're just going to do till, you know, so you just can't anymore. Well, but what do you what do you see in the next five years? What what would you like to do? Well, I've just finished a script on the Schliemann story on how he found. I mean, how do you write a script on archaeology, which was not easy, but it is a wonderful romantic love story, also about how where he was born and what inspired him. Um, how many times he got distracted from his goal of finding Troy and, and saying to the world that Homer wrote about a real story in a real city, in a real uh, town. And and so I'd finished it recently. I started it and we finished it with Sherry Anderson. You know, she was uh, one of the head writers for Days of Our Lives. So uh, since I was working a lot uh, during the years, I thought, well, I put it aside. So just recently, while I was doing the podcast, I said, I'm going to, I want to make this a more modern story. And so I've done that with another writer and with Sherry as credited as well. So that just, that's completing itself Thursday. We're coming together on this and it's going to go to certain people. I'm very pleased with the script. I think it's a good adventure good romantic story, and it's about finding gold, and it's a true story. Um, I wrote something for Days of Our Lives, which was about um, the Peacock would do miniseries, uh, 
So I thought one day I had this idea of a, of a whodunit and involved all the characters. I gave it to my producer. Uh, he read the first three pages. Says, Where's the rest of this? And I just wanted to test him out. And he says, I love this. So I said, well, let me do it. So the next few months I went to Austria and I wrote it, finished it, and I handed it over to him. But we've had strikes. We've had um, problems, you know, getting days back with Peacock, getting contracts with that. And so I think we'll probably go to the 60th anniversary and probably that will be it. But um, so I'm waiting for a response on that. I think it's good. And if it doesn't, um, because the budgets have changed. So I'm thinking this will be a good film script. So when you ask me what in the next five years, I think writing will be certainly exploration because um, when I met the scholar, uh, Crawshaw in Kefalonia, and he took me up and down the mountain showing me where they have found the remnants of the Ulysses empire and why this is the right island, um, so he's invited me back because I've made some new discoveries. So, I, I, you know, this is, I don't know. It's like when I was a young actor, I didn't know where it was going to happen. All I know is that my curiosity is still healthy and alive. And, and um, I have purpose, you know, that, that something beyond days, you know, when days is over and that history is over, which fed well, fed me, all of us, very well, the audience, the actors, um, you know, to have been part of an sh iconic show for 41 years, that's pretty good in Hollywood. But um, I still have more to talk about and, and share. So I'm sure there'll be another book. I, I'm writing short stories, and uh, and see, we'll see where it all goes. I, I want to thank you for coming on, Teo. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, the Lost Treasures comes out in September, I believe, right? September 5th, the first version, and then two weeks after that, the first one will be about the discovery of Troy. The second one is, is the Mycenaean gold and the curse that takes place. And then the third, is the, which is going to be new to the world because the story is really not out there yet um, on how they have found, truly found the island of Ulysses. And, uh, and then there's other stories. Pat, I have all these stories. That are, the first book I wrote called Places, I have all these stories there. And I thought, you know, I should record some of them. So I may look at that as another venue for podcasting. We'll see how all this goes. But, you know, is everybody interested in treasures? Well, if they're not, they should be because <laughs> there's nothing more beautiful than digging in the earth and finding a piece of gold that is 3,000 years old. You know, it's... <laughs> Exactly. So people, go check out Teo. Check out his podcast when it comes out. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 965 episodes. You can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.